1: Welcome to another edition of Ghost Chronicles International. I am Ron Kolick, your host, the gatekeeper to the realm of the unknown, the unexplained and the unbelievable, New England's own Van Helsing, And with me all the way across the pond is the very much understated Mr. Parascience himself, Steve Parsons.
2: Happy New Year, Ron.
1: Hey, Happy New Year to you too. Is this our first one back?
2: It is our first one back and we all survived the end of the world of apocalypse and Christmas.
1: That's right. That's that's uh, quite the thing, but I mean we enjoy Christmas, I know you do and I know I do, so that's not a bad thing.
2: No, it's a great time, but it is nice when it's over as well. It's a bit like having a good friend to stay. It's really nice to see them, but after a week it's trees down and <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, I sent you uh, something on the uh, page there all about the rise of witches in Wales. What's the story on that? And, sat- and satanicism
2: as well. Yeah, this was, this was a, a story that hit the papers last week. It's actually it's an old story. Um, mm-hmm. But but we do have uh, quite a, uh, an increase in uh, what do you call it? Modern witchcraft in the Welsh Valleys and in Carmarthenshire, which is the next county to where i live and indeed my own county of pembrokeshire um i guess it's part of this modern new age revival um and the church is is obviously concerned about it and one of the the uh, church ministers came up and said you know there's been this huge revival in witchcraft and we're all going to suffer and you're all burning hell really and he said it in a, he said it in a welsh accent which i can do but uh, well
1: you guys are really uh, tough on that
2: we don't do that no, anymore no, no, We do No, no, we don't burn witches anymore. Um, no, we... You know, and we've got, we have central heating these days. Get out! Yeah, and we've taken all the thatched roofs off, and, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, we don't use horses anymore either. Well, not for right. pulling vehicles.
1: You still have your priest holes? Uh,
2: yeah, we still have... Lots of our buildings still have priest holes, um, but then you've got to remember that most of us live in buildings that are older than your country.
1: That's the truth. You know, that's the interesting thing. I brought that up the other day is that in the United States, especially in in New England and in the northern states, uh, we have all these little closets and little rooms and little hidden rooms that were all part of the Underground Railroad from the uh, Civil War. And uh, and I was telling them that. And of course, the UK you have all these priest holes, which is kind of similar to it. so you have your priest holes, and we have our underground railroad stuff.
2: Well, it, I mean, there aren't that many. Uh, most most houses that date from, say, pre-16th century, particularly if they were held by a Catholic family, would uh, have had some provision to have accommodated a priest. And in times of particular trouble, then they may have, um, some of them did actually have secret hiding places. And indeed, some even today, uh, quite recently, you know, uh, as excavations and renovations go on inside the buildings, uh, mm-hmm. they, still, they still do discover priest holes. Um, but often it, often, as not uh, quite innocent little storage areas often get labelled for the tourists, particularly American yeah. tourists, as priest yeah. holes.
1: Yeah, we, we have. Because be honest with you, some of these... Because you, uh,
2: you love it if, it, if it's a pre-soul, as opposed to just the uh, the right. grain cupboard.
1: I mean, that's the same thing with the Underground Railroad over here, be honest with you, it really is. A, there's so many little closets and cellars that say, you no know, they're part of the Underground Railroad, and, and I have my beliefs that, you know, they're not their root cellars, they're uh, storage rooms, they're just, uh, you know, whatever. But anyways, we're not here to talk about pre-souls, uh, we're that here to talk be, about... Uh,
2: Another. Well, a kind, a kind of shared common link, isn't it? We, uh, there is, there's a lot of people uh, who, who hypothesize and theorize that America was actually discovered by the Knights Templar. instead really? of Christopher Columbus, um, as they escaped from persecution in France, but I'm not really an expert, although... I have spent some time in in, in Templar locations. Uh, mm-hmm. and we have some Templar collections out here in in West Wales, so I thought we needed to get ourselves at expert so an old friend of mine i haven 't spoken to him for a long time, but we 've done lots of archaeological digs together, and we really? 've uh, shared some adventures. Um, so it's my great pleasure to welcome the world's leading expert on the Knights Templar. That'll get me into wow. trouble. He's not really. Mark Olly.
3: Hiya, Mark. Thank-, thank you. Hiya. Hello, America. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, we yeah. are in the UK too, you know.
3: <laughs> ah, jolly good. We get listened to over here. Yes, um, I do know a thing or two about Knights Templar, as, uh, as I was saying earlier on. Um, and I have dug many, many things with Mr. Parsons. We've been down caves and up mountains and done all sorts of things over many years. So, hi, Steve. Good to meet up again. Hi, yeah. We've. Um, I was just
2: thinking, we, we once found a holy well, didn't we? Uh, yes, we did. And more right. rather we... I, or rather I did, because you were digging up a cave <laughs> round the other side. Oh, oh, yeah. A holy well? Thanks.
1: Wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What, what's this
3: thing? Uh, uh, full of ancient boats and you found a dark Age Celtic well, so yeah, it wasn't a bad weekend that, was it?
2: Bad <laughs> <laughs> weekend, it took us six months
3: <laughs> <laughs> Well, three years in all, but never mind <laughs> uh, Yeah, you were mentioning um, temple remains in uh, in America, there is apparently um, something over there in western Massachusetts uh, It's the western night, isn't it?
1: Yeah, well, I,
0: I really don't want
1: to talk too much about the, the U.S. right now, because I, I know quite a bit about the U.S., and, and uh, when Mr. Parson comes over here, we're going to do some things with it. So uh, we might talk about uh, the eventual, uh, you know, the, the theories about them coming over here, but the specifics I, I'd rather leave out of about the American stuff right now, if you don't mind, Mark. I, I'm more interested in the roots of the Knight Templar. A lot of people throw this name around, Knight Templar, and, you know, who were the Knight Templars, and, and what's their story? What's the storyline on them? What's what's going on?
3: Um, well, they have interesting beginnings. Um, there was a call to crusade uh, by Pope Urban in 1095, which figured off um, probably the best part of 11 or 12 crusades over a period of about 300 years, depending on who you read and what you believe. Um, and on the uh, first crusade, when they got to Jerusalem, Uh, These orders of knights, uh, some of them decided they were going to basically change their function uh, and do a different job. So you finished up first of all with the Hospitallers who were there to treat injured knights and then you finished up with the Templars who were there to protect pilgrims, or at least that's the official line um, but after about thirty odd years there were still only nine of them to take on the whole of Saladin's army so there's been all kinds of legends grown up about the reasons why uh, they positioned themselves as they did on the Temple Mount in Solomon's Stables um, and up to fairly recently, rumour has it, that uh, if you go on the tour to Jerusalem they'll point out the Temple of Tunnel so they were possibly the world's first archaeologists, because it looked as, as if they'd been sent out there to dig for something. Mm-hmm. Um, being back in medieval times, uh, religious artefacts and new information was as valuable then as as, as they are now. Um, so really that, that was it. They got um, approved by the Pope. They were actually the second order to be approved, because the Hospitallers were the first, um, mm-hmm. and that was in 1123. Um, but the mysteries then start because people keep bolting things on. Um, you know, did they, for example, protect the grail? Did they create... Godfrey? Right. well,
1: let, let, before we get into that, let, <laughs> let's still get a little bit more. I mean, because they were, uh, what I understand, and I'm the expert on the course, is I understand that they were quite uh, disliked by the, uh, the Muslims. And uh, uh, they, they were also uh, fairly good fighters and... Uh, and I remember one battle, I believe they, the, uh, well, I think it was Saladin,
3: had them all beheaded. Yeah, there's uh, two schools of thought on that one. Uh, it's, it's definitely safe to say that they are the world's first standing army. Uh, they, they were a force to be reckoned with, and they were run on, on strictly military rules. Uh, but the religious side uh, meant that you get mixed reports about how well they got on with the Muslims. Um, to the extent that some of them came back off crusade having converted to uh, Islam. So, there's a mixture going on there. Really? Yeah. Mm. Uh, There's there's a document that says, um, it's been read to say that they worship somebody called Baphomet, but that document's been revisited by modern translators, and the word Baphomet actually is a misreading because it says Muhammad. So it was actually easier to accuse them of devil worship than it was to admit that they were coming back as Muslims. Um, so, like I say, there's a bit of a mixed opinion over that. And Saladin actually never never met Richard the Lionheart either. That's a misnomer. Uh, but the two of them were very good friends and sent messages back and forth to each other. Um, and quite a lot of good came out of it, as well as bad. But um, so it, it wasn't all bad. Um, I think but, it's,
2: I th- Sorry, Mark. Um, I was just, just going to add... Go on, we have an echo here sometimes it, it, it make, <laughs> the delay is a bit awkward I was just going to add, I think it's fair to say that they were they were considered to be warrior monks uh, primarily, weren't they? Um, yeah and most of their um, financial support came from huge land holdings that they had been given throughout Europe uh, indeed, you know, even out here as far as West Wales and throughout the UK and indeed um, mainland Europe there are a lot of locations and uh, towns, places that have the word "temple" in the name. We have Templeton, for example. Um, well,
3: I, I agree with that because in France, they actually owned two thirds of France, and the king only owned a third.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we also—it's also interesting that you mentioned the Hospitaller Knights, because um, right. again, adjacent to Templeton, uh, we have an, uh, um, the town of Slebeck, which was a Hospitaller um, preceptory. Or, or town or farmstead. You and I, I know I, what a preceptory is, Mark. I was just giving Ron the. Um, it's it, it, it's it's an area where they would they would own the land and rights, and they would collect all the revenues from in order to fund the fighting machine mm-hmm. that was stationed. Uh, well, it was stationed in Cyprus and throughout the Middle East, um, but they also were the first bankers and I think that's oh, quite
1: an yeah. interesting aspect. Right. Um, before we go on a little bit of the thing is is I understand too that when you became a Templar, you actually had to give up all your holdings and everything to the organization is that correct?
3: No. Well, that's what they say, but
1: Yeah, reality, that's what I'm I'm trying to that's why I got you on here, Mark. I want to know the the fact from the fiction, you know?
3: Well, it, it does vary over the world. If you look over the over the whole world that they occupied, you you tend to find that some of them didn't do that. Some of them retained the family holding or left it to their, their lady, the good lady, when they went off on crusade. Mm-hmm. Um, and you get this weird anomaly in southern France, for example, that female knights outnumber male knights three to one, because oh, wow. a lot of a lot of the male knights, of course, were killed in successive crusades. So the women then are coming in because it's a religious order, they can come in as nuns, uh, and you finish up with this whole battalion of, of, of sort of miniature Joan of Arc's, if you like. Um, and it was only about ten years ago when the records were examined that that, that fact came out. Uh, so by the time Joan turns up, ladies wearing plate armor and what have you must have been quite common in France. Because <laughs> um, they're <laughs> And they do actually... they quite
2: scary women are quite common out here as well.
3: <laughs> yes, they are, very common. <laughs>
1: So so, uh, so that's a little bit about the beginning, is, is that it, they were uh, a fighting group of monks, is, is I think the easy way to put it, From uh, as uh, Steve said. Uh, but you, you started to get into it about the, the banking and the archaeological aspects of this organization as well.
3: Oh yes, they, uh, they invented the traveller's cheque um, and charged a small, very small commission, probably about 10% on transactions, so you could put gold in, say, at Manchester, which is over here in England, and you could travel all the way to Paris with a piece of paper, which was the traveller's cheque, uh, and cash it in, and then have to pay them you know, a little bit of it as a percentage for doing that service. But it meant that if you got ambushed, obviously, the only thing you could do was the cheque because the gold was was kept within the organisation. But if you do that for 300 years, um, people believe that when the order was dissolved, the end result was uh, Swiss banking. That's possibly one source where all the treasure ended up, um, which, of course, is a a red cross on a white flag. It kind of gives it away, really. Uh, So they think that they possibly um, went on to found Swiss banking. That's stunning. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, that's. I mean, so they became, I, I know that someone in the Perex chat room, uh, and by the way, you're listening to Ghost Chronicles International right here on Toginet, Pararex Ghost Channel and beyond, and you can join us in the Toginet or the Perex chat room, and then someone in the uh, ceiling cabinet in the uh, uh, Perex chat room uh, said they were really the first multinational corporation, I guess.
3: Absolutely. Yeah, they had, every, they had everything that you would say would characterise a corporation. They had the world's biggest navy, the world's biggest infrastructure, uh, biggest military organisation, uh, more property than most of the kings in Europe. Uh, I mean, at the height, they were just um, enormous, absolutely enormous organisation, which is part of the mystery because a lot of that, of course, disappeared, blended seamlessly into the backdrop of history, and, and that's, that's part of the attraction of the Templars. Um, there must be an awful
2: lot out there that we don't know. I the, I would actually contest one thing you just said there, Mark, just for the, for the sake of correctness, and that was that's the thing about out. the Navy, because um, the, the the Templars um, hired, rented most of their shipping from the Venetian state, and that's why the Venetian state became so powerful and rich as well, supplying shipping to the Templars. So having their own Navy, I I, I would take issue with possibly...
3: No, well, it's, it's said that that navy sailed out of France on um, Thursday the 12th of October, carrying the Templar treasure and, and most of the Templar knights, just before the order was dissolved on Friday the 13th by Philippe, um, and they, they they sailed out on a white cross on a black background, which became white crossbones on a black background, which became skull and crossbones, or so the story goes, uh, because, of course, they were outlawed, they were uh, disfranchised by the Pope, um, and they became pirates. Well, so, I mean,
2: they, they certainly ended up. In, well, one story has them certainly <laughs> ending up in Scotland, doesn't it?
3: Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the most popular story by far. Yeah. All
1: um, right. Was, so let's 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 go back to the beginning. I mean, we, they were doing their thing and they were making money on these banknotes, and they became a large multinational corporation. And the Crusades ended. What happened to the Templars?
3: Well that's um, that's really the demise of the Templars. Um, Saladin recaptured Jerusalem um, and basically they were out of the job, obviously they couldn't do anything. Uh, that's where you get this this um, sort of zip line, if you like, to drink like a Templar, because you had all these Templars then scattered all over the world with, with very little focus and little to do. Uh, they just, they carried on, they carried on fighting for various Crusades but it never really amounted to, to anything like the power they had during the Crusader period. Um, And then eventually, of course, Philip, as I said, grabbed them all in 1307 on Friday the 13th, um, all the Templars in France and arrested them, Um, and then from then on it was sort of downhill. Um, At the time the Pope uh, took sides with the King because it was a a fairly weak Pope, Uh, but eventually Clement actually uh, said that... uh, they were innocent. He actually wrote it down and said, You know, we absolve the Templars of all wrongdoing. And that only turned up in an article uh, very recently when there was some research being done in the Vatican Library. Uh, oh, really? So, yeah, it's only just come up. It's only just come up very, very recently. It's uh, that they actually absolved the Templars and said, We're very sorry, we dissolved them. Um, but they did carry on in other forms. You know, they scattered, as, as Steve said, they, they ended up in Scotland. That was out of the reach of, of, of the popes. So, I
1: mean, let, let's go back to that fatal day. I mean, once again, the, the Templars are still doing They they've, they've amassed the fortune, according to legend. I don't know if that's true or not. But uh, And why did the French move against them? And, of course, Friday the 13th being the bad luck day is one of the, the things is, is believed because he moved on it. But why did, did the King of France, I mean, I think I know, but tell our listeners why that, that happened.
3: Well, simply money. It's, it's down to money. He owed the Templars such a phenomenal amount of money, and the Templars owned so much of France, so much land, uh, that he really saw them as a, a tremendous threat to the French Crown. So that was primarily why he made the move. Uh, but the Templars actually were a bit canny, because they gave everything they owned to the Hospitallers. So about 80 years later, the French Crown was still fighting to try and get this money out of, out of the Hospitallers. And they were saying, no, it was legit, the Templars gave it was legit, tough luck. So actually the whole exercise rendered in with nothing. Um, and Templars in Britain weren't dissolved till 1334, because the British Crown really liked them. Um, so they don't really turn up as, as a, an independent force over here, till you get the Battle of Bannockburn. Um, and they fought against the English in that. Um, so anywhere where the Pope could reach them, they just scattered, they disappeared. Uh, there's even one legend, legend that associates the Oak Island Money Pit with them. Um, so right. obviously they're everywhere. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the reason. That, that's the answer. So how, how
1: do we get the, how do we get the the connection between uh, Sinclair and, and Scotland and the Templars?
0: Oh
3: gosh, um, the Sinclairs were said to have taken to ship and sailed across the pond to America to see what they could find. Um, But in British records, they're not the first to do that. We've got records of the Irish coming across in in the later Celtic period, the the early medieval period, and we've got them sailing across. So I I think they must have been aware there was something over there. Um, And they're not the only people to reach America. There's an awful lot of people that reached America before Columbus. You just don't get to hear about it. Well, I think they knew where they were going. Um, well, in the case of in the case of the uh, the Sinclairs,
2: um, the Sinclair, uh, the head of the Sinclair family, uh, actually gave or was said to have given shelter uh, to the Templars as they arrived in Scotland after bailing from France, um, and went on to become the head of the the sort of British UK, well Scottish in reality Scottish Templar um, armies. Uh, he he then uh, built a, as a, a sort of tribute to the Templars the famous Rosslyn Chapel, um, which has become connected with so many Templar myths and legends. Uh, you go into Rosslyn and it is you know covered in these exotic carvings, many of which people have made links and associations to the Templar to the Templar stories, including the American. Um, the journeys to America, the Sinclairs, uh, when they were, uh, kings of, or the line was the Sinclair family were kings of the Orkneys. Um, they allegedly, uh, the map apparently still exists or, um, but they used a, ma- a map that was provided to them by the Templars, which showed the route to, uh, via Iceland and Greenland, uh, to Newfoundland and North America, the famous Orkney map. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the Sinclairs are still held to be the, the sort of uh, nominal head of uh, not just the Templars but also the Freemasons in the United Kingdom.
3: Oh, I wouldn't say United Kingdom. I would say Scottish, Scottish right.
0: Mm, yeah, Scottish right.
2: But <laughs> I, I think I think within the UK now the Scottish right uh, sort of holds uh, preeminence. So that's why I said the UK. And particularly with the with the increase of interest in the Templars and the uh, Freemasonry. So um, you're absolutely modern, right. They were Scottish right Freemasons.
3: Yeah, in modern times, the, there are definitely two different types of Templars in existence. There's um, those who claim some form of continuity from the original Templars, who obviously when the Catholics forgave them, they came back out of the woodwork. And they go under various different names and orders, but at the end of the day, they do still finish up being Templars. And then you've got the Masonic Templars, um, and the Masonic ones split into two. So you've got the Scottish Rite and the English Rite, so they're they're all about the same in terms of numbers um, at the moment. They're all relatively equal. So I, I think the Scottish and the English would take odds that you putting the two together. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I don't, I don't think they're all under the rulership of uh, of Scotland by any means.
2: <laughs> no, but until until the Scottish Nationalist Party finally get independence, we're all part of the United Kingdom.
3: Well, yeah, yeah, we are. But, tough uh, luck
2: on the tough luck on them.
3: Well, the uh, for example, the order I'm uh, part of at the moment is uh, we're not connected to Freemasonry at all. We're actually um, one of the papal offshoots. So um, you could trace us back to the originals, ultimately. Um, so that's another type of Templar, and, and there are groups exactly the same, scattered all over Europe, um, but with Masonic connections, obviously, because everybody has, but uh, not quite to the same degree as, as the Masonic rites. Um, so they are still going. They are still out there. I see a I going America's gone quiet.
4: Well, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm listening to this
1: and, and uh, you know, it's such an interesting thing. I mean, uh, I, I'm picturing this large corporation. Of course, every corporation has a head, has leaders. And then uh, this Friday the 13th comes around. Evidently they round up and uh, torture and kill most of the leaders of the Templars. Uh, and then what happens is each one of these splinter groups break up and become whatever they become. Is, is that how it went down? Or did leadership, is there still a national leadership or, or a world leadership, or, or did the corporation dissolve, basically?
3: Well, there's, there's still a Catholic leadership under the original Templar structure, which goes back to the Pope. So that's the independent Templars that carried on, that didn't disappear. Um, And the worst day for them on a worldwide scale occurred in 1571. um, And that's when the Ottomans destroyed the um, Templar archives on Cyprus. So if you wanted a date when the worldwide templars effectively came to an end, you would be looking around 1571. So they carried on in other parts of the world. Um, If you were looking purely to Masonic templars, Um, They are part of of a sort of resurrection movement, if you like. Freemasonry came out of the 1600s and the 1700s, so consequently the Templars of that time moved into Masonry and and that started. Um, England are under Grand Lodge in London, and I would agree with Stephen, so Scotland now probably looked to Roslyn as as the figurehead, looked to the the St Clares and the Templars there as, as their leadership. Um, But that's only in the UK, obviously on a worldwide scale, um, you know, the various lodges in various regions are answerable to different uh, leadership structures, Uh, but that's broadly speaking how it is now. Um, It wasn't all the Templars that were arrested and killed, it was just the ones in France, and most of the preceptories, there was sort of two men and a dog left, because they all knew that they were going to get arrested, they got ticked off the day before. Um, So anybody who was an able-bodied man scattered, and they reckon that possibly as few as five or six hundred were executed in total. Um, So while it was bad for France, it wasn't necessarily bad for the rest of the world. Um, So it's not a clean-cut end, is perhaps what I'm trying to say, Uh, there's lots of loose ends that continued. It sort of rumbled on.
1: Okay, I know we're coming up on the break now. uh But I want to talk a little bit when we come back after the break about, of course, the the burial mound and uh, the temple uh, in uh, Jerusalem. While the temple is occupied, there's lots of stories in regards to that. So, anyways, uh, you are listening to Ghost Chronicles uh, International right here on Tojinet Erex. Ghost Channel Beyond with Mr. Parascience himself, Steve Parsons, New England's own Van Helsing, Ron Kolek, and our very special guest, Mark Ali. Uh, We'll be right back after the following messages.
2: Welcome to Talking Net, radio with a cutting edge.
3: An oasis in this hectic world.
1: The creepy and the kooky, mysterious and spooky. They all talk ugly, kooky. The Parrax family. The shows are paranormal, not stuffy but informal. The topics are abnormal. The Parrax family.
2: They're strange.
1: Street. So grab
4: your favorite rule.
1: It's time to rendezvous as we give awards to the Barrett X family. Take 6,427. All right. Hi, I'm Ron Kolick, author and lead investigator of the New England Ghost Project, New England's own Van Helsinki.
4: And I'm Ann Kerrigan, the blonde bombshell, and I'm the lead investigator of East Bridgewater's Most Haunted.
1: And we'd like to invite you to tune in Ghost
4: Chronicles, The Next Generation. Every Wednesday night. At 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on www.toginet.com.
1: So, so, Ann, what are they going to hear on this stupid show?
4: What are they going to hear? They are going to hear things that they can't believe are happening.
1: Like uh, Beyond Bizarre.
4: And Cemetery Tripping.
1: Oh, that's your deal, right?
4: Absolutely.
1: Yeah, one of these days you're going to get uh, so scared of one of these cemetery-tripping things that uh, you'll, I'll have to get a new co-host.
4: <laughs> I am brave beyond belief.
1: Nothing yeah, we we'll scares me. Except so anyways, if you're bored and you got nothing to do on Wednesday night, tune in to Ghost Chronicles Next Generation with Anne
3: and Ron. See you then.
1: You are listening to Ghost Chronicles International with Mr. Steve Parsons, Ron Kolak, and a very special guest, Mark Ollie, right here on Tojinet Parix, Ghost Channel, and beyond. So before we go back to the conversation, uh, I do have another episode uh, from my favorite girl, Vala Ventura, in her book, Beyond Bizarre. So let's play that right now.
4: Off with his head. In late July 2008, while riding an overnight Greyhound bus through a desolate stretch of Manitoba, Vince Weigong Lee of Edmonton, Alberta, decapitated his seatmate with a hunting knife. While other passengers were dozing in their seats or watching The Legend of Zorro, Lee started stabbing his seatmate, said Tim McLean, a 22-year-old carnival worker who was listening to music on his headphones. When the bus stopped and other passengers fled, Lee cut off McLean's head and it at them through the bus window. Traumatized passengers were bused to a hotel in the town of Brandon while police had a standoff with Lee. Canadian Public Safety Minister Stockwell Day commented, The horrific nature of it is probably one of a kind in Canadian history. A terrifying tale from Bonaventura's Ventura's Beyond Bizarre.
1: That's interesting. That's 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 a UK
2: way, right? Just soft with the head. Yep. <laughs> Although it's actually um. Yeah, the French perfected it. They used the sword. We just lumped it off with an axe. Yeah,
1: and they had the uh, guillotine t- too. T- t-
2: which t- two or three goes as well. Um, yeah, it's a bit well, brutal.
4: You
1: know, you know, you know what always kills did. me is they is that they always say the police had a standoff with the uh, the guy. It's like, you, you know, just kill the guy and chop it off his head. What's the standoff? Shoot the bastard. Get it over with.
2: <laughs> <laughs> now, you just imagine, I mean, the, the, they've obviously got to try and negotiate. Why? I don't know. I don't
1: know. Save us court time. It's yeah, not like somebody else did it, fears. you know what anyway, I mean? back to the Templars. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. <laughs> Sorry, Mark, I, I do find Pontificate at times. No,
2: it's and, my right, don't really... to, and my job is to keep Ron on song.
1: Oh, so many have tried,
3: <laughs> many have tried and failed.
1: There you go. <laughs> so, is this the story about you know the the Templar Knights while they they uh, occupy Jerusalem and they dig in the temple? The well, I understood they were digging in the uh, temple to create stables for their horses or whatever and and then it went beyond that and supposedly they found relics and everything is is there any truth to that or is that just another fairy tale
3: well in reality the stables were already there um it was a building which is now known as solomon's stables um and it's just a huge building it's been converted into a mosque so it's, it's still there today um, mm-hmm. that was there to begin with but um as I said, guides to the, uh, to the old city there were showing a tunnel uh, leading away from the back of it that basically appears to go underneath the site of the old temple uh, which is the Temple Mount in Jerusalem and it would appear they were after something there's all sorts of stories um, that they found the grail, they found the ark they found the temple treasure uh, the most plausible of all of them though is probably that they found something like the Dead Sea Scrolls they probably hit a library of some kind. Uh, whatever it was they found, anyway, appears to have been um, shipped off back to the Vatican um, and made the order very rich and very powerful and very popular for quite a long time. Uh, that's as the story goes. Um, very similar kind of story to the Cathars, um, jumping over their castle wall and doing a runner with, possibly with documentation. Um, but most of the temple treasure was sacked by the Romans. Um, So nobody really knows. No, nobody really knows for sure. But as a betting man, I would say my money's on it being documents.
4: Okay.
2: But, but no, so it's the Holy Grail.
1: It's not. It's not. <laughs> it, you know, it depends what yeah, your that's, definition that's, that's of the Holy the Grail thing. is,
3: is not it? Yeah, um, you should know better, Steve. It's in Wales. Uh, well,
1: <laughs> yeah, um, there yeah, you go. Yeah, Mark. Which
2: one we have? uh, We have hey. um, the Holy Cup, which is yeah. at. Um, the well, yeah, the, whole, the holy the yeah. holy nibbled egg cup that's been it's a chewed up little wooden bowl and it, it's not very really far away from here. Um, Nanteus cup. Nan, nan, yeah. Nan, that's the one Nanteus. The Nanteus yeah. cup. Yeah. Uh we we have another legend that has the holy grail on Caldy Island with the uh, hidden treasure there. I'm we on. have we have a uh, the holy grail at Neven in Pembrokeshire yeah. about three miles from here uh yeah. it's it's location given away by a cross carved into a rock wall Ooh. um which is yeah, which is visible to all to see so that's not much of a, a Heidi uh, you know much of a yeah uh, there's there's two there's another legend that associates it with Margham Abbey uh, yeah. about 50 or so miles away from here yeah but
0: it's a um,
3: castle in Langofland isn't it it's thought...
2: everywhere it's absolutely everywhere
1: I mean, we're you know, going to have we, to do a show on the Holy Grail just tracking down sure, various well, locations.
2: It's, it's probably got its own Facebook page as well. And there's a no, connection. It's true too.
3: The temple has had it, so there is a connection. You know, the temple is supposedly guardians of the grail. Uh, that in the late Lake- sorry. What Go might on. be
2: interesting is that the connection between, you were talking about what was located underneath the Temple Mound, and mm-hmm. there is certain modern archaeology certainly seems to suggest that there was ancient archaeology taking place and that yeah. uh, the Templars were definitely up to something underneath oh. the Temple Mound. But what's interesting is the Templars were always said to have worshipped the head, a head, the head of Christ or the head of uh, Christ's head, the head of Baphomet. It was always a head. Mm-hmm. And some scholars have linked that with the folded version of the Shroud of Turin um, because the images of Christ pre-Turin or pre-1300s are are quite various and and scattered. They have him as – there's no consistency in their portrayal. Um, but
1: but post- that's the, not the head shroud. The head shroud is in Spain and has been since it's <laughs> been traced. There's actually a lineage, lineage to it.
2: Yeah, but before, before, before you dismiss the Holy Shroud of Turin, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when researchers looked at the fold patterns on the Shroud of Turin and the mm-hmm. way it was always folded and stored, it mm-hmm. would always be uh, about the size of a picture portrait displaying only the head. The rest of the shroud was always folded underneath into the box. So you would only ever see the head or the face.
3: The other one, the veil of Verona, that's the other one, which is um, the one that the Catholics have where the lady wipes the face of Christ on the way up to the cross. And that's quite different from the shroud. Uh, Very recently, the shroud's been identified as uh, 1st century Roman. The actual material that it's made from, the weave and the uh, the way it's been put together, so there's a very good chance it could be real.
1: Yeah, the uh, the right the original uh, research group that did the uh, uh, the carbon dating on, on the shroud, uh, uh, they took all their samples from the same uh, place on the shroud, which is in scientifically you really. You don't do that and what had happened if you look at the shroud itself because i've actually seen uh, the shroud is that uh, it was burned in a fire and it was mended and so they believed and this is the group itself believes that they uh took all uh the samples from that material which mended this the shroud
3: yeah yeah it's the repair patch isn't it right the, the they couldn't see clearly where they were taking the samples from because the the shroud had been folded back up and they are almost positive they got the repair patch on the edge
1: have, have you ever seen the, the shroud itself in, in, or, or or any replicas or anything say again have you ever seen the shroud or any replicas or anything
3: no, I've only ever seen the uh, archaeological data. Uh, I've got the reports on the examinations of it uh, and the shortcomings of the carbon dating and things like that. But I've never actually been across and seen the shroud in, in the flesh, so to speak.
1: It, in, uh, the, in the United States here, we have a uh, church-sanctioned replica of the shroud, which is owned by the Passionates, and uh, they they bring it around. It's It's simply amazing because most people think of it as this, you know, small cloth but the thing is absolutely huge it's absolutely it really, huge
3: yeah it's, it's, it's about uh, about 20 feet i think long
1: exactly it's, it's amazing yeah. because you know we all think of this this is always the body shirt you know it's like maybe six foot but the thing is is like i said very large well just it's to throw a
2: spanner in the works, boys, I mean there is actually some very, very good scientific evidence that suggests that the Shroud of Turin may not be a holy relic, but maybe something equally as amazing. It might be the world's actual actually the world's first photograph.
3: Yeah. Um,
2: and no, you may well scoff, uh, I Robert, don't. But there is there is very, very good evidence and replicable studies have been done. Using techniques that were readily available um, in the fifteenth uh, century when the thing first appears in the records, um, and it does you know strongly suggest that what you're dealing with might actually be. The world's first proper photograph and the most likely culprit, and indeed, his notebooks even suggest he had a hand, uh, he was involved in the techniques that were needed to produce it. He had the camera obscura, he knew about the chemicals. Ooh, I and it, that. Might, it might actually be his own face because on the Turin shroud, the head is completely separate and disproportionate to the body. And what you might be looking at is a photograph with the face. Uh, but not the body of Leonardo da Vinci.
1: And there is have yeah, really,
2: really good evidence that suggests that.
1: I, I, on the other hand, I have, like I said, I have had the opportunity to see the 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 uh, replica of it, uh, the, which is, you know, it's identical replica, of it, and all the the marks on it are. Um, What's the word? Uh, they've all been uh, rationalized. I guess that's the word. Or, or, you know, where did this mark come from? Where did this mark come from? And, and according to the 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 shroud itself, I mean, even uh, Christ's arm uh, is dislocated. If you notice, one of them is actually longer than the other was, because when they they applied them to the the, the Christ uh, to the cross. Uh, they actually had to pull his, his arm out of the shoulder, of course, because these were like standard-made crosses. It wasn't like, you know, custom-made.
4: No, so it's, it's, it's interesting. interesting. It's, but
1: all, it's, it's all conjecture. And, yes, everybody has the right Go ahead, Steve.
2: There was a, a man at the right time who had very, very detailed anatomical knowledge mm-hmm. um, and also had suggested in in his own notebooks that he had had actually crucified a cadaver uh, in Mm -hmm. order to find out the way it hung. And if you have that much medical knowledge, remember the guys that analysed the the blood patterns on the shroud and said, you know, this comes from a genuine crucifixion, um, Mm -hmm. or somebody with a great deal of medical knowledge and knowledge of crucifixion in order to recreate this. And there was mm. one particular person who could have done it. And in fact, if you look at da Vinci's uh, life and works, he was um, one for poking fun at, at the church. Um, and it would have been quite within his capabilities and, and abilities mm-hmm. to create this, this super holy relic and then snigger you know, quietly as the church verified his work.
1: Okay, uh, we're going to have to take a short break because we have a telephone call uh, from a listener. so we'd like to get him on the air. Doug, are you there?
0: Hey, Don, how you doing? Good, how are you? This is Doug Brown.
1: Hey, Doug, how you doing? Uh, how can we help you today?
0: Is this Don Cromwell?
1: No, I'm not even close.
2: <laughs> it's the wrong number.
0: <laughs> oh, well, I got your number off the Internet for Don Cromwell's radio program. So
1: close. <laughs> no, nope, pray not.
0: Oh, I, I'm sorry. And I was listening to your discussion. That was very interesting.
1: Oh, well, um, if you like to comment on it, please, please do.
0: Well, I, I'm not that adept to what uh, Da Vinci did, but um, I, I'm, I'm a Christian,
4: mm-hmm.
0: and 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 I believe that the Lord is my Lord and Savior, and. Nobody could ever uh, fake what he's done, you Mm -hmm. know, as far as uh, he died for us. He he rose in three days, and I I don't think that could be duplicated.
1: No, I mean, as far as we know, that certainly can't be duplicated. And, uh, you know, that's the great thing about religion. It's, It's our beliefs. Uh, but sometimes science and religion clash and, and we have no proof scientifically that the shroud is not. We have our theories that it's possibility that it could have been Da Vinci or it could have been something else. But uh, when it comes down, it's just theories. Uh, we have no solid proof as sure, sure. So
0: well, Anyways, I, I'm, I'm enjoying your discussion and I'll continue to listen, but uh, thank uh, you very much for taking my call. Oh thank you, Doug. Have a great day. Happy
3: New yeah, Year. You, Happy New Year to you. Yeah, Steve, I was just gonna I was gonna jump in and say the uh, the cloth of Edessa, which is thought to be the Turing shroud, was given by the Saint Clairs to um,
2: That's right. To
3: the uh, to the church where it's now displayed, but that occurred in thirteen oh seven. So um, it's a bit before Da Vinci. <laughs> yeah I say this is it 's one of
2: these great things, as that last caller just highlighted um, there is a plausible case for it being a genuine holy relic, and the Catholic mm-hmm. Church recognize it as such, but equally, the Catholic Church have allowed science to have a look at it, and other oh. researchers have come up with other possible plausible explanations right. and it it's one of the great mysteries isn't it it, it will still uh, it's going to run on for a long time yeah despite yeah. the fact that you know the, the carbon dating said no it can't come from the time of christ it didn't affect people's belief in the shroud one exactly. iota um yeah. and so you know i i don't think there's a clash between science and religion necessarily um except in areas when we come to darwin of course and Whole different ball
3: game. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. create
2: crea- the uh, creationists. Um,
3: yeah, but you're to uh, say you still the... Darwin had no concept of chaos formula. He really didn't. The idea that all things decay just just passed Darwin by. And the fact that in the last couple of months they've actually identified that Neanderthals we're actually a completely different genetic species than humans, i have punched a pretty big hole in uh, the evolutionary um, ladder, I'm afraid. Well, so, I, know
2: uh, where, I know where the Neanderthals, there's a small colony of them out here. Yes, we've got
1: them in the UK. They were French, weren't they?
2: Uh, Well, I think, wasn't the last surviving Neanderthals were in Portugal, if if I'm right, if I I recall correctly?
3: (laughs) It comes into into early prehistory, doesn't it? They they were around up to about, somewhere around 10,000 years ago, possibly, the last ones. Um, But they died out. They're they're a completely different species. You know, they're as different to us as, say, I don't know, pigs or gorillas or whatever. Uh, They're not us. That's the the big shocker um, that's been recently discovered. Um, so anyway, don't get me on the evolutionary thing. That's another. So uh, this is this is kind of interesting. We we started off with Night templars, and now you you.
1: I mean, I'm the one that always gets accused of uh, going off uh, topic. <laughs> <laughs> now we're into evolutionary Neanderthals and Cro Magnon. Okay.
0: Look what you've done. I know. I know.
1: I know. So I mean, going is, back to... Actually- going. Going back to the Templars, and then the Sinclair connection, which I think is really interesting. We, we talk about Roswell Chapel, and, and I believe you, you've actually been there, Steve, right?
2: Uh, I've been in the fortunate position to have um, spent, in total, three weeks at Roslyn, um, actually staying at Roslyn Castle, um, uh, which is adjacent to Roslyn Chapel, and is part of the same estate, and therefore you've got uh, effectively, unlimited access to Rosslyn chapel the the, the castle uh, was the home of the of the uh, Sinclair family um, and in fact, still is to this day. Um, the castle is still owned by the Sinclair family, uh, but you can rent it out privately, uh, which we did, but we were there to explore the obviously uh, more interested in the ghosts that are attached to the castle and the chapel. Yeah. Um, and a third building called College Hill House, which is uh, part of the estate as well. And we took the rent of all three of them, uh, and we spent, uh, as I say, uh, over two years, a total of three weeks, uh, investigating, exploring, and getting, you know, fully hands-on with the location. So, yeah, uh, personally, I've got, you know, quite, quite strong um, memories and and sort of fond attachments to Rosalind.
3: Mm. I've done a couple of visits as well. I've been up there three or four times. and uh, I started a fell race up there dressed as a Celtic warrior the very first time I went to visit the chapel and I got there just before it shut. And you can imagine somebody looks like an extra from Braveheart tearing up to the gate going, don't close it, don't close it. So I got to wander around the chapel for an hour or two after closing time So I don't think they had the guts to throw me out.
4: <laughs>
3: <laughs> wandering around with the shield and the sword, you know, they kind of left me to it. Well, uh, that's another story. What I do in my spare time. <laughs> so, so
1: Steve, we, uh, uh, while you were there, and, and Mark, uh, I mean, did you note all the different uh, the decorations? Uh, uh, do they have any meaning, or are they just decorations? Uh,
2: well, the the biggest, the, there is a huge. I mean, there are. Dozens and dozens and dozens of books written about the decorations, the carvings at Rosalind. Some of them are quite bizarre. Um, some of them are quite plausible. But I think one book sums it up, um, and it's it's quite a small book. Uh, it was published in... Uh, I'm just trying to find the date of it. Um, it was only published in 2004, called The Stone Puzzle of Rosalind Chapel by uh, a guy called Philip Coppens. Yeah. And he... He, he does, unfortunately, explode the myth. Uh, first of all, that it was built on the plan of the Temple of the Mount, uh, Solomon's Temple at Jerusalem. Um, Rosalind Chapel actually wa- uh, wasn't. It, it follows a fairly standard plan and is almost a miniature form of Glasgow Cathedral uh, in its layout. It's and the amazing. carvings, the carvings whilst bizarre and wild and... Certainly, they cover every possible surface, horizontal, vertical, ceiling, wall, alcove. Um, They are quite simply church decoration uh, of a type that was common at that period. Although Roslyn is unique in that it has so much of it. It's like the Masons have gone completely mad um, and carved anything and everything they could uh, into Roslyn. Um, But there are... Unfortunately, no real, you know, hidden messages. It, it's not a message to aliens. There's no hidden codes within it that, that give us the location of the Holy Grail. There's a great, there's two great ghost stories attached to the chapel. Um, but in reality, from my perspective, it was the castle that was uh, said to be the seat of the great treasure and uh-huh. also has a, a very interesting ghost story directly linked to the treasure in that. Uh, And these are still fully open, um, or they were during our visit. The the castle actually has three, four layers of cellars beneath it, forming, uh, it's almost like a giant uh, condominium beneath the castle, actually cut into solid rock. But it clearly goes back far, far deeper into the living rock than the present cellars uh, permit. And there's been a legend since... um, the, uh, the demise of Mary, Mary Queen of Scots of a huge Templar and Sinclair treasure uh, and indeed Scottish, the, the, the Scottish crown jewels um, may be also um, hidden within the cellars of Roslyn protected um, by the spirit of a white lady who stands upon the stairs on a particular stair um, and is summoned by music or whistling Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, we did replicate it dozens of times, but it is the most, uh, it's not, when when I say it's the spookiest place, it's not because I was scared, but if you take an archetypal, damp, medieval, turreted, gloomy castle at the bottom of a deep ravine, um, with you know, surrounded by cliffs, and the only way to reach it is across a narrow bridge that's seventy feet above a ravine. Um, it's perfect in every way, mm. and you can rent this place. You can go stay there. Oh wow! The whole place. But the price? Well, yeah, but the, I mean, the price has gone through the roof since the Da Vinci Code. Right. Um, the, you know, you can imagine the, the the cost went up threefold the minute the film came out, uh, which is which is why we stopped going um but but we are thinking about a return maybe 2014.
1: Well um, you know I just have to come over for that baby.
2: Well it we can accommodate I think 14 people if, if memory serves me right.
1: Um, cool so anyways I I did hear the pizza guy the doorbell means the pizza's here and uh so it's time to wrap it up uh It's been interesting, and certainly we could talk a lot more, and we didn't, as I I mentioned, I didn't even want to get to the American uh, part of this, but, uh, you know, it's been a great conversation, Mark, Uh, you've done uh, lots of uh, tidbits for us to think about, but one thing I I, I do want to mention to... my good friend Mr. Steve Parson is just because he couldn't understand a code or, or pick up a code in the, in the chapel doesn't mean there wasn't one because I know that they've even had uh, actually uh, peri- uh, uh, codes that were from World War II that haven't oh, even the been deciphered yet.
2: Yeah. Um, no, what, it's, it's not that there isn't a code, it's just that uh, because people don't don't really understand the medieval carving, uh, mm-hmm. people assumed, and and because of the association with the Templars, and people right. wanted there so much to be a treasure, and wanted so much there to be something hidden, in, uh, that they that they were misreading what is actually normal things. So there were, there is there isn't a secret code at Rosslyn. It was mm-hmm. just it made for a very very good story what this guy does um, mm-hmm. he actually just says no look they were just going mad with the carving um, <laughs> this
1: but one, anyways this I, I know I've got to wrap it up now and I do have something I do have to mention this next Tuesday night uh, you certainly want to join us in the uh, circles of wisdom in Andover for my monthly paranormal study group uh, we will have transmedium Maureen Wood uh, will be doing talking about uh, transmedium ship and ghost hunting we'll also be carrying on with our astro-viewing experiments and uh, uh, psychometry experiments and some of the other stuff we're doing, so uh, uh, be sure you can go to the circlesofwisdom.com on my website, inegosproject.com the letter N, the letter e, egosproject.com so, uh, Mark, thank you so much, uh, it's been a great conversation and uh, I appreciate you
3: Any cheers Mark,
1: catch you soon mate Fun. Yeah. So it's time to wrap it up Until next time From Ghost Chronicles International Good night and God bless
2: Good night, good night. From ghoulies to ghosties long leggedy beasties
0: And things that go bump In the night Deliver us Good lord.